0: You're listening to The End Sunday Show. Leaving behind religious obligation to find a more authentic expression of Christ in us, this is The End Sunday Show. Hey friends, Mikey Adams here. I want to welcome you to another riveting episode of the Un Sunday Show. Really appreciate you joining me today. I want to talk about kind of a serious subject today. I want to talk about what we've called church discipline. This phrase church discipline has been around Christianity for quite some time, and I want to talk about it. I want to ask the question, is it real? Is it something that belongs in the new covenant, or is it an old covenant concept? And so I want to delve into Matthew 18 here, which is kind of the go-to verse for a proof text for church discipline. But let me say this, too, just as we're getting started. You know, I used to write a lot. I've tried to sit down and write about this so many times. This has been a topic that's been on my mind for probably two years or so. And every now and then I get the urge to sit down and write about it. But, you know, I have a real writing block now. I used to be rather proficient in writing and reading back in my performance days. I used to write and read in order to be right. (laughs) Well, I don't have to do that anymore, so I get to rest, I get to relax. Having come into a better understanding of my own identity in Jesus and of grace and of the gospel has kind of really hindered my writing skills, and I'm not totally disappointed in that. But anyway, I say, I say that just to let you know that this isn't something that's coming right off the top of my head. It's something that I've been thinking about, as I said, for quite some time, and I just want to talk it through because it's a lot easier for me now, this side of performance-based Christianity, to just talk about things, to have a conversation. And so I do have a couple of hand-scribbled notes here, you know, just some bullet points that I want to talk about that I've got on a piece of paper here in front of me, just to keep my thoughts straight but I want to kind of work through this whole idea of church discipline and ask the question, is church discipline legitimate? Is there such a thing as church discipline? If there's not, we owe a whole lot of people an apology. So let's work through this a little bit. And I'm going to be starting here in Matthew 18. I'm going to read this, verses 15 through 20 of Matthew 18. And this should be familiar to most of you, but it's going to be the basis for our conversation. And so let me read it. Again, this is Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20. My heading says, Dealing with Sin in the Church. And just as a note, I'm reading from the NIV, not because I think the NIV is super spiritual or super, you know, better than any other version of the Bible. It's just what's right in front of me, and so that's what I grabbed, and that's what I'm going to read. But it says this, starting in verse 15, and this is Jesus speaking. We know it's Jesus speaking because the letters are read, right? So Jesus says this, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And again, that's Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20. We've taken this verse because it says, you know, it has the word church in it a couple of times, We've taken this as well, this is a process for kicking someone out of the church. If someone's, you know, sinning habitually, caught in some kind of a sin, and unrepentant, and, uh, you know, we even turn repentance into kind of a religious term and we think of it more as penance. But repentance really just means a change of mind. That's simply all it is. But we take this verse, we take this passage, and we say, okay, if someone's in the church, and they're sinning against someone else, and there's no reconciliation, that eventually we need to take it to the entire church, and we need to we need to kick them out, you know, shame them publicly, and kind of uh, get rid of them that way. But I want to slow down a little bit, and I want to look at this verse a little more carefully, and I want to share some things with you that I've seen over the last couple of years as I've worked through this. And the first thing that I want to bring up is the word church appears here everywhere that uh, there's the Greek word ekklesia. The translators have used church here in this instance, and really in almost every instance in the New Testament. Wherever the Greek word ekklesia appears, the translators have inserted the word church. Again, not everywhere in the New Testament, but in most places. I'm thinking specifically of like Acts 19, where we're told that in the city there was an assembly gathered because Paul was causing so much disturbance. That there was an assembly gather, which was a public gathering. It was kind of a governmental thing, like a city council, and there the the translators, of course, use the word assembly instead of church. But everywhere where it seems to apply to the body of Christ, the translators of the New Testament have inserted the word church, and so that becomes an obstacle for us because we have to get over that. We have to think, okay, this says church, and so it must be the church. But please realize this, and I've talked about this, you know, a dozen times or more on this podcast that the word church is an old English word which means a lord's possession. It's an old English word that probably derived originally from the Greek word kuriakon, which kuriakon means, you know, something belonging to the Lord. And so this old English word, which means a lord's possession or a lord's house, probably referring to an English lord at the time. Again, this is very old English. And from what I've been able to uh, put together— this word first appeared around 500 AD and began to be inserted into Scripture. And so almost everywhere where the word ecclesia, which means assembly or congregation, is used in the New Testament, it's been replaced with the word church, which means a Lord's possession. And like I said, that old English word probably derives from the uh, Koine Greek word uh, kuriakon, which really just appears two times in the New Testament. Did you know that? Kuryakin, which means something belonging to the Lord, appears in 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper. And it's also in Revelation 1, verse 10, where John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Those are the only two instances of that word kuryakin. So if the Old English word for church comes from the Greek word kuryakin, then really church ought to just be used twice in the New Testament. And yet it's everywhere that ecclesia appears. And that causes a lot of confusion. Because church and ecclesia are two different things. Church is something that belongs more to institutional religion. Ecclesia is a free-flowing assembly, a free-flowing uh, congregation that is the body of Christ. Now, there's a lot that we could say there. There's a lot that I could rehash about that, but I would just encourage you to go back to previous episodes here on the On Sunday Show, and even some in the uh, Grace Cafe podcast that my wife and I do, where I talk more about the ecclesia. Specifically, you might want to look at William Tyndale, the episode I did on William Tyndale. When he actually died, he was first uh, strangled by church officials, and after he died, he was burned at the stake posthumously by those in charge within the church because he refused to use the word church in place of ecclesia because he saw a distinct difference between the two. One was institutional and took away from what the body of Christ is really about, which is a free-flowing assembly. But I'll let you go back in the previous episodes and look that over. I'm not going to rehash all of that in this episode right now. There's plenty of that on the Sunday show and in different uh, episodes of the podcast. So, I'll let you uh, sort that out. But something else to note here is that ecclesias were all over in the culture at that time. When Jesus said, tell it to the ecclesia, those listening to him had some kind of a reference point for what an ecclesia was. An ecclesia was sort of like a, a city council or a town council where the assembly would come together to decide legal matters and to decide disputes. That's why when Jesus said, I'm going to build my ecclesia, again, our translators have put the word church in there, I'm going to build my church. You know, this is right after Peter said, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my ecclesia, or your translation probably says church. But that's why the disciples didn't stop Jesus at that point and say, what do you mean you're going to build a church? Because he didn't use the word church. He used the word ecclesia. And there were secular ecclesias all over the place and the culture at that time. Again, Acts 19 is a good example of a secular ecclesia being called together to resolve a conflict within the town, within the city. And so when Jesus said, I'm going to build my ecclesia, the disciples and those who heard him had some kind of a reference point to what an ecclesia was. That's why no one raised their hand and stopped him and said, What's an ecclesia? Because they already knew what an ecclesia was. Ecclesias were all over the place. So we'll come back to that concept here of secular ecclesias in just a moment. But another point that I want to make to you is that this passage in Matthew 18 is Old Covenant language spoken to Old Covenant Jews. Let's go back to Matthew 18 for just a moment and read this again. It says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, when Jesus said there, take one or two others along with you, so that quote, he's quoting here from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19 and verse 15. In other words, this is a direct quote from the old covenant law, from the law of Moses. Jesus is saying if they won't listen to you, take one or two others along. Why? So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, according to the law of Moses under the Old Covenant, that these people were all under at the time that Jesus spoke these words. So if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, it will help us to understand what's going on here. Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen says one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, than do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is Old Covenant. This is law, people. This isn't grace. This is Moses. This isn't Jesus. This is Old Covenant. This isn't New Covenant. This language is heavily Old Covenant. And it was spoken in the context of the Old Covenant. This is pre-cross, so the New Covenant hadn't begun yet, and it's spoken to people who were obligated to keep the law of Moses. Where is the concept of two or three witnesses in the New Covenant? It doesn't exist. It's all Old Covenant. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, the writer of Hebrews mentions that under Moses, people were put to death on the basis of two or three witnesses. It wasn't a kind covenant. It wasn't a gracious covenant. It was a law covenant, and people died on the basis of two or three witnesses. And they died, the writer of Hebrews says, without mercy, which is exactly what Moses said here in Deuteronomy when he said, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot." for foot. This is an old covenant idea. This is not a new covenant idea. And that's reinforced in verse seventeen, when Jesus says if they refuse to listen, tell it to the Ecclesia, and if they refuse to listen even to the Ecclesia, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That word pagan is the Greek word for Gentile. Treat them as a non Jew or a tax collector. So let's put another piece of the puzzle together here as we work through this passage. Remember that in this context, Israel was under Roman rule. What do you do when you're under Roman rule and you can't carry out Moses? You can't do what Moses said. They couldn't put anyone to death. They couldn't execute anyone. Moses, the law of Moses, said there'd be to be put to death. You know, if you disobeyed your mother, father, or whatever, they were to die. Hebrews says that on the basis of two or three witnesses, they were were given no mercy. They died without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. Well, when you're under Roman rule, and you can't fulfill moses you can't carry out that execution on your own what do you do you have rome do it that's what happened with jesus isn't it the jews couldn't kill jesus they had to manipulate things around to the point where they got rome to do it so under roman rule which is the context here in matthew 18 they were under roman rule how does moses work how do you get this thing to work well i believe jesus is simply tell them that you look to the secular ecclesia There's some kind of government involvement here. There's some kind of civic involvement here in order to get Moses to work under Roman rule. This is what it seems like to me. That's why when Jesus said, tell it to the ecclesia, not church. He didn't say church. He said, tell it to the ecclesia. He had to have been referencing the secular ecclesia at the time because no one raised their hand and asked him what he meant. He was saying, look, here's how Moses can be fulfilled today. If someone sins against you, go to that person if they listen to you great you've got reconciliation if they don't listen to you take uh, one or two people along so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses according to Deuteronomy 19 that every word may be established then if they still won't listen what do you do well you take it to the ecclesia you take it to the to the civic government to the civil government you take it to the city council to the town council if you will maybe we could put it that way I, I don't think that's completely Uh, I think it's a little bit apple or oranges, but hey, uh, it might work. But when you can't execute what Moses says to execute yourself because politically and culturally you're under the dominion of Rome, what do you do? Well, you tell it to the ecclesia, and you let it be dealt with there. But you still use Moses. It's still on the basis of two or three witnesses. So this is an area where, you know, we've inserted ourselves here. We've said, well, this is the church, and, you know, we've put church in this thing, and it's really confusing because when we read this, we think, man, i got to tell it to the church, you know, and then— uh, Tell it to the whole church. We don't. We don't even do that in most of our practices. We don't tell it to the whole tr- whole church. We'll tell it to the pastors or the pastoral team or the elders or whatever, and they kind of deal with it. You know, we don't go and tell it to the whole church. Usually not until the very end when someone says, "Hey, so and so isn't here anymore because you know A, B, and C, and they're gone." And we think that we're following Matthew 18 here, kind of verbatim, but I don't think so. I don't think this belongs anywhere in the new covenant. And that brings me to my fourth reason for this, it, simply the fact that this process isn't repeated anywhere in the New Covenant Scriptures. So much of what Jesus said in the Gospels and what we call the Gospels isn't repeated or referenced anywhere in the New Covenant Scriptures from Romans through Revelation. You know, you think about the Lord's Prayer, you know, the thing we call the Lord's Prayer, that isn't repeated anywhere in the New Covenant uh, epistles, the New Covenant letters you know, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, so much of this stuff was Jewish in nature. It was for the Old Covenant. It was spoken under the Old Covenant. You know, you get back to the Lord's Prayer and you think about the Lord's Prayer, you know, part of that was, you know, forgive us our debts as as we forgive others. And you think, wow, my forgiveness is based on my ability to forgive someone else? Well, that's not New Covenant. That's, again, Old Covenant. That's not grace. That's law. So much of this stuff, you know, we, we kind of take Scripture and we and we ball it up together and we think the whole ball of wax here is for all of us all the time and in every situation and in every era. But that gets us in trouble because what happens then again is we begin to insert ourselves into passages of Scripture where we don't belong. And we're really good at doing that, aren't we? We're really good at doing that. And I think we do that here with Matthew 18 because Jesus' instructions here— isn't repeated anywhere in the New Covenant Scriptures, and there were there were several instances where it certainly could have been. I'm thinking about the guy in Corinth. Remember the man with his stepmom, and there was something going on there that was really bizarre and was really hurting people. And you know, Paul even said, "Look, the the uh, pagans don't even do this kind of stuff. The the Gentiles don't even do this kind of stuff. It just isn't out there that a a, a man would be with his stepmom." And so Paul stepped in and said you know, get this guy out of here. He's hurting people. Who knows what kind of abuse was going on? But Paul immediately stepped in and said, get this guy out, and he's hurting people. And of course, you know the story. He eventually acknowledges that sin, and he's brought back into the the ecclesia. But Paul had an opportunity there, didn't he? And he blew it. He had an opportunity to say, hey, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Here's the process. Okay, you've got this guy, You know who's who's carrying on here. You know somebody needs to go talk to him, and if he listens, great. That's excellent. But if he doesn't listen, then take two or three more with you, and and make sure that in doing that, that you're lining up with uh, Deuteronomy 19 and what Moses said with two or three witnesses. And then if if that doesn't happen, then bring it back to the entire ecclesia, to the entire assembly. And stand up in the assembly when the whole assembly's gathered together and tell everybody what's going on. Paul didn't do that, did he? He either recognized that there's a difference in what Jesus said in Matthew 18, or he really blew it. And I don't think it's the latter. I think he understood that there's a separation between Old Covenant and New Covenant, and that Matthew 18 doesn't belong in the New Covenant. That's my take. But Paul had an excellent opportunity there to say, look, bring this guy in and flog him and you know and and do exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 18 and, and but Paul didn't do that we're told elsewhere in the new testament scriptures to mark those who cause division we're not told to follow the procedure in Matthew 18 to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18 with those who cause division but with those who cause division to mark them out remember diotrephes in third john remember the little tiny letter of third john a little one chapter letter of third John. Of course, this is the Apostle John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I call him the Three Little Johns, right before the book of Revelation. And there was a guy named Diotrephes who John mentions. This would have been another perfect opportunity to say, hey, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18 and follow this procedure. But he didn't do that. If we pick up 3 John, uh, starting in verse 9, again, it's just one chapter. So verse 9 says, I wrote to the church. There we are again. We're injecting the word church where ecclesia is. But John has said, I wrote to the assembly. I wrote to the congregation. But Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I'll call attention to what he's doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church wow what an indictment what is john saying here about diotrephes first of all he wants the preeminence your version might say he wants to be first he he wants to be prominent he wants to be the one up front he wants to be the person in charge and john says he doesn't even welcome us he doesn't welcome us as apostles so john said remember what jesus said in matthew 18 and start this process down through here no he didn't say that at all He said, when I come, I'm going to call attention to what he's doing. In other words, we're going to have a conversation about this when I get there. What's he doing? He's spreading malicious nonsense about us, John said. He's refusing to uh, to welcome in new believers or other believers who maybe are traveling through the area or moved into the area. And then look at the next phrase. He says he also stops those who want to do so. In other words, those who want to welcome other believers— he stops those who want, to do, who want to do so, and he puts them out of the church. Wow. But wait a minute, I thought that's what we were supposed to do. Isn't that Matthew 18? Aren't we supposed to put them out of the church? John's saying, no, that's a bad thing. John said, well, when I come, I'm just going to call attention to what he's doing. We're going to have a conversation with him, and I'm going to have a conversation with you, John is saying, and we're going to talk about what's going on there. He didn't say, okay, now remember what Jesus said. This is the process, and we need to follow the process. The words of Jesus are not repeated anywhere again in the New Covenant scriptures. That's why I don't think there's such a thing as church discipline. I mean, think about that term. Church discipline. Again, it's an area where we've injected ourselves into a passage of scripture that I don't think we belong. We're not looking at the context. We're not being careful with it. Those who originally inserted the word church into passages like this. Are those who were in control who had the power who wanted to keep the power? Well, how do you keep the power? Well, one way that you keep the power is that you intimidate people with that power in order to keep it and that's exactly what viewing Matthew eighteen as church discipline and I'm using air quotes that's exactly what that does is it instills fear into people and a spirit of conformity to the rules so that this doesn't happen to me but there's no instance, there's no occurrence of that happening anywhere in the New Covenant Scriptures. It doesn't exist. That's why I don't think there's such a thing as church discipline. I don't think that Jesus' words in Matthew 18 and that portion that we read there, I don't think that his words in that portion of Matthew are intended for us at all. I think that institutional Christianity has inserted itself into this passage as a way to keep control. But I don't think church discipline is a thing. I think we've inserted ourselves into this passage. I think it's an old covenant concept that isn't repeated in the new covenant. But we've inserted ourselves in there as a way to control people, as a way to ensure conformity to whatever the rules are of the institutional setting that we're in. And if that's the case, if church discipline isn't a new covenant idea, if church discipline doesn't really exist, and I don't think it does, then I also think that we owe a lot of people an apology. We'll talk again soon. Thank you for joining us on the UnSunday show. To be a part of this ongoing conversation, visit us online at unsunday.com.